from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Thursday, November 29th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. senior judge says Britain's news media needs stronger regulation. The Prime Minister David Cameron is cautious. We should, I believe, be wary of any legislation that has the potential to infringe free speech and a free press. Meanwhile, in Turkey, a popular TV drama uses stories ripped from the headlines. They had an ongoing storyline with a journalist who was detained. But the Turkish government doesn't much like it. Free speech and politics ahead on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Britain's phone hacking scandal is still making news. You might recall the scandal involved the widespread hacking by British journalists of the telephones that belonged to celebrities, politicians, athletes, even crime victims. The revelations brought down Rupert Murdoch's tabloid News of the World. That scandal also compelled the British government to take a closer look at the news media's standards. Well, today, Lord Justice Brian Levison unveiled his verdict on the matter. Bottom line? He didn't like what he saw. Levison found that the British news media had failed to meet its own ethical standards. He recommended a new independent body to regulate the press, supported by law. In a moment, we'll hear more from Sarah Lyle. She's in London following this story for The New York Times. But first, here is the British Prime Minister David Cameron reacting today. For the first time, we would have crossed the Rubicon of writing elements of press regulation into the law of the land. We should, I believe, be wary of any legislation that has the potential to infringe free speech and a free press. Sarah, when you were hearing the results of this alongside you, were some of the very reporters who might be affected by what Lord Justice Levison has proposed. What has their reaction been? The newspaper industry is dead against having statutory regulation. They much would prefer to be self-regulated the way they are now. And they kind of claim, well, we can do a better job. We can have a better, you know, body that adjudicates this stuff. But they're really, really resisting, as you might imagine, you know, having to answer to a legal government body. So what kind of things would would be brought up to a legal body? Give us kind of a, a real world example. Well, I suppose things like if someone had been followed around by the tabloids, it's a shame that the newspapers in the UK don't have enough morality to work out those things by themselves without someone telling you it's wrong to hack into someone's phone. But so far, that hasn't been the case. Here's a question, though, about the the issue of morality. When it uh, seeps into legality, why don't these issues simply become an issue of law and order? That's an interesting point. Levison actually specifically said in his remarks that had the criminal laws been working properly as they should, a lot of this wouldn't have been necessary. There wouldn't have needed to be all these inquiries because the police really let down everyone by not investigating the phone hacking, for example. And that's one other issue that he brought up was the coziness between the press and various institutions, including politicians and the police. 
you know, people are and institutions are afraid of doing things that the press doesn't like in this country because they're afraid of being attacked in the press. And once the Murdoch press starts attacking you, you're in really big trouble. They have a lot of different titles, a lot of different newspapers and a lot of influence to really, really do a number on you. Sarah, how are things different here in the United States? It's a completely different system. The UK has no such thing as the First Amendment. There's no constitutional guarantee of freedom of the press. Here, there's a real suspicion. And you see it in sort of ordinary people who hate the press and don't want to talk to you as a reporter. You see it even in government departments who, you know, instead of helping you when you call the press office, you know, their, their first impulse is to how do we get this person off the phone as quickly as possible? You know, they seem to feel there's not a right to know rather than there is a right to know. It's a really different mindset that has contributed, I think, to the press's feeling that the only way to get information or the, you know, the tabloid press is to use these underhanded techniques. It's really hard to get information in legitimate ways sometimes. I wonder what the reaction is among some of the phone hacking victims in the UK to this uh, call for some sort of regulation of the press in Britain. Oh, that's exactly what they want. I mean, they'd like it to go even further. They feel vindicated in some ways. They've been able to air their grievances. They've had people listen to them. They've told their often very shocking stories. And these are celebrities and non-celebrities. I mean, I feel just as sorry for the celebrities in a way because they were just plagued and tortured by reporters over the years. So it's the first time they've ever gotten to get up and with some kind of impunity say, this is what happened to me. And it's just wrong and it's disgraceful. If they tried to do that before, they would then be attacked so much in the press, there's no point in doing it, really. Sarah Lyle, London-based reporter for The New York Times. Thank you. Thanks very much. You can get the latest on the Levison inquiry from our partners at the BBC. Go to theworld.org. The Internet makes it a lot harder for anybody to separate fact from fiction. A story from the American satirical website The Onion is a case in point. The Onion recently proclaimed North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un to be the sexiest man alive. A Chinese state newspaper picked up the story. It printed it as a real story, along with a slideshow of the young Korean leader in more than 50 very striking poses. The Onion's not the only one out there, though, finding success with this formula. The world's Clark Boyd has the story of one Serbian satirical site. A few years back, Serb businessman Dejan Nikolic got sick and had to take a leave of absence from work. A huge fan of The Onion, not to mention The Daily Show and Stephen Colbert, he started writing satirical stories on his Facebook page. People started flocking to read them. In 2010, he and some friends decided to start a satirical website of their own in Serbian. The site's called News, that's N-J-U-Z, dot net. Basically, it started off as a ripoff. Of, of the onion, you know, so the onion is what what uh, basically uh, took us in, and uh, uh, we wanted something here because we knew the, the ground is uh, fertile. Look at it this way, Nikolic quips: almost everything that happens in the Balkans is already a parody of reality, anyway. Every day is akin to walking through a political, social, and ethnic minefield. But Nikolic says the news crew tries to stay funny by being equal opportunity destroyers. And that means bringing no political agendas to the writing table. We aim to do the, the, the real journalist job. So we tend to take the facts and question the motives and then write the story only if we know that our target really did or said what the media reported that he did or said. Well, for the political stuff anyway. It was actually a completely trumped-up shark story that won news its 15 minutes of Internet fame. Here's how the story went. 
Dragan Stavic, a Serb, was on vacation in Egypt. Stavic reportedly got drunk, jumped into the water, and unwittingly landed on a threatening shark, killing the beast with his legs. Totally made up. Except that Macedonia's official news agency picked up the story and ran it as real. Then social media got a hold of it, and before long, newspapers around the world were running it. Chinese newspapers, Arabic newspapers, the New York Post. And they changed the story. It wasn't Stavich's legs that killed the shark, but his butt. Then, Dejan Nikolic says, Russia's Pravda got a hold of the shark story. They called several uh, physics professors, and uh, they basically made an infographic showing... Uh, that how that is possible, basically, that that it generates enough power to, to, well, if you have a very fat Serbian tourist, you know. A couple of Australian blogs even named the fake Dragan Stavich Man of the Year, for real. And then the real story of the fake story got outed. Still, the news newsroom had a good laugh, although, says Nikolic, it was a nervous one. You start thinking about how easily, how easily you can manipulate press on the world stage with the shark. It showed that it's it's a trend. Nikolic says that the speed of the Internet's to blame. Everyone wants to get the craziest story first in order to get all those advertising clicks. Fact-checking, proper translation, all of it goes out the window. No wonder News.net is expanding. It started an English-language site called The Global Edition. Nikolic says he's hired mostly Americans to write the stories. The Onion can't employ them all, he jokes. And most of the stories, he says, are about America. We're having tremendous fun because you guys are like 10 times more crazier than we are. A couple of headlines from the Global Edition website to illustrate. Nostalgic Petraeus playing a lot of Call of Duty these days. And study finds men live longer with plenty of beer, fried foods, and if conversations are kept short. For the world, this is Clark Boyd. Sorting fact from fiction is an issue in Turkey, too. It's a country with some big taboos. There's one TV series that's tackling them. The show has a big fan base. But as Ashley Kleek reports from Istanbul, that doesn't include the Turkish government. A little past 11 on a Friday night, Murat and Aishin sit with cups of tea. The newly married couple is waiting to watch the season premiere of Bezat Che, an Ankara police story. Bezat is a good cop who follows his own brand of morality. He's a lovable anti-hero. He treats the people that he arrests badly, but inside he's a very good guy because he's fair. He's a fair person. To understand why the show is such a big deal here, you have to look at other Turkish TV series. Currently, the most popular are The Magnificent Century, which chronicles the life of Ottoman sultans, and Forbidden Love, a typical melodrama. Boy and girl love each other but can't be together. Bezatçe is something different. On the show, unmarried couples debate moving in together. Bezat and his compatriots drink and smoke, and they curse a lot. He always uses slang. Usually, we don't see that kind of slang in TV or in Turkish cinema. It's it's not reflected. But in in the real life, the Turkish people we speak quite a lot of slang. So that's why it makes me watch every time because uh, it reflects the reality. We speak like that. The people speak mostly like that. The show's creators don't just stray into unfamiliar linguistic territory. They also touch on topics rarely talked about on Turkish TV. Melis Belil teaches film and TV studies at Qatar Haas University. She says on Bezatçe, you see police corruption, domestic violence, a Kurdish mother looking for her lost son, and the list goes on. 
They had an ongoing storyline with a journalist, young woman, who was detained. So that was at the same time when a lot of journalists were being detained for um, not reflecting uh, the government's opinions, even if that's not the official reason. Then there was another rip from the headlines moment that sounded a lot like the shooting of a Turkish-Armenian journalist in 2007. I believe they had an episode about a murdered Armenian journalist, which is directly from the Rantink murder. A lot of very current and controversial issues. I mean, to reflect these times, you have to be political, because these are very political times. Executive producer Tarkan Karladay says they looked to the news and Turkish politics, hoping that people who didn't read the paper would watch a TV show. But the government is also watching Bezatçe. In particular, the government controlled Ertuk, the Turkish radio and television Supreme Council. <laughs> Karladay says Ertuk heavily censors the cursing, drinking, and politics. Bottles of beer and alcohol are blurred on the show, and the dialogue is constantly bleeped. The show's creators have been warned twice and fined once to the tune of about $150,000. Carlotte says maybe they've gone too far a couple of times, but it's ridiculous that the government focuses so much attention on the show. I really don't understand that. Three times we've been summoned before the television and radio board for official questioning of our series, as if there were no other problems in Turkey, as if Bezace is their biggest problem. Karladay says they're being more careful these days. They self-censor. And it's forced them to look for more creative ways to say things. But, he says, Turkish artists are used to that. Turkish people, Turkish literature, theater, cinema has always dealt with oppression. But art always finds its way in spite of the state. We have to push our limits without giving up. And we do not intend on giving up. There's no sign of that. With Bezace now in its third season, public support has kept it on the air. As for fans like Aishan and Murat, who are tired of all the heavy censoring, they now watch the show online, where it's available in its unblurred and unbleep state. For The World, I'm Ashley Kleek, Istanbul, Turkey. More news and our geo-quiz on the way on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. For the past week, residents of Goma in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo have been living on a knife's edge. Their city was taken over by well-armed rebels of a Rwandan group that's called M23. Rwanda backs the group. Since then, many shops in Goma have been shuttered, and people have been staying inside as much as they can. Now the rebels say they're prepared to retreat from the city, but many people doubt that claim. Today, correspondent Michael Kavanaugh traveled across the front lines from rebel-held Goma to army-held territory outside the city and then back again. Kavanaugh told us the reality on the ground in Goma is anything but simple. Eastern Congo borders Rwanda and Uganda and Burundi. And Eastern Congo is incredibly rich in natural resources, in land, in minerals. And it's also a place that's not very well governed. And because of that, there are a lot of rebel groups in Eastern Congo. And this includes rebel groups from Rwanda, from Burundi, from Uganda. 
They've caused a lot of instability in Congo, but they also, at some points, threaten Rwanda, Burundi, and Uganda. Now, because of that, these neighboring countries have occasionally invaded Congo to chase after these groups. But they've also, when they do this, they've exploited the minerals here. They've exploited all the natural resources, the farmland, any of the, any of the trade that you see here. And so, you know, this is, it's a very complicated struggle about security, about national security for these different countries, about even ethnicity and the different ethnic groups that cross the, the borders here. And it's a, it's a struggle also just about uh, mineral resources and, and economics. And we should say that when you're talking about uh, the big mineral resources, the deposits, we're talking about gold and tin and tungsten and coltan used to make mobile telephones. Now, Michael, you are in Goma right now in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We understand that you're just back from a trip today across the front line. So you went from rebel territory in Goma into the army-held territory and then back again. Tell us what that journey was like and what you found. So you drive through rebel territory, and that's, again, where I started because Goma is now held by rebels. And you see these rebels who are relaxed. They're very well equipped. Their uniforms are new. Their weapons are well taken care of. And then slowly you cross through rebel lines to these beautiful hills along this uh, gleaming lake uh, in the shadow of a volcano because Goma is actually in the shadow of of an active volcano. And then you go through rebel-held territory of a different rebel group. Now, these rebel groups are, are local militia, and some of them are drunk and drugged, and you know they're here, and they say, we're protecting, we're protecting our country from these rebels who are trying to secede or whatever they're saying. And then you end up in army territory, and, and the army is chaotic, and the army is very underpaid. They make some of the, the, the lowest soldiers only make about 40 or $50 a month. And, you know, there are hundreds of them, thousands of them, and they've been humiliated in the last few weeks by this small band of rebels. And you can see it in their faces, and you can see it when you talk to them. And at the same time, you sympathize with them, right? Because they're so underpaid. They're they're fighting this war against these brothers in a, in a place most of them aren't even from, the, the, from Goma or from the Kivus. They're disorganized and undisciplined, and it's taking a lot for Congo to turn this army into a a coherent enough group that can provide security for the population. But this army itself, in fact, in the village where I just was with the army, they just a few days ago actually pillaged the population, and there were cases of, or I should say alleged cases of of rape and, and sexual violence, which is something you see a lot here. So you know, the population here is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. On on the one hand, they have a disciplined rebel group, but it's a rebel group. And then on the other hand, they have a national army, but it's very disorganized and predatory. You spoke, in fact, with a man who is the head of the army's ground forces, the nation's armed forces. This is the Congolese Lieutenant General Francois Olenga. Let's let's hear a, a bit of this conversation, and we'll need you to interpret for us, Michael, because he's speaking French. Le Congo a été victime. He said, we're preparing for war. Congo has been victim of 15 years of external aggression. That's enough. I'm going to the capital to ask my authorities for permission to go to war. There will be no more negotiation after negotiation. Now it's war that will bring peace. So this is the new general who has a very demoralized military, as you just said, that has been humiliated by a rebel army. When he says it is war that will bring peace, he doesn't sound like he's on board with international efforts to defuse what's happening there. It was a surprising thing that he said today. And in fact, we immediately got calls 
from people close to the president of Congo, Joseph Kabila, who were asking us if he really did say this, because this is certainly not the government line right now. They are trying to be conciliatory. If there's anything we've learned over the past 15 years, it's that it's going to be very difficult to bring peace to this region, which is so sad because, as you said, it's a region of great beauty and great promise and great riches. But because of that, it's also a region that everybody seems to want a part of. Until that changes and until there's more stability here, um, I think we're going to see the, the potential for a lot more bloodshed. More bloodshed because at this point, it sounds like things are extremely tense. Things in Goma are extremely tense. Today, as I drove through the city, most of the shops were closed. They're worried that as the rebels retreat, they're going to loot the city. And so I talked to shopkeepers who who had said, you know, they've already gone home for the day and they've closed up their shops to avoid something like that. And, and they're going to have a difficult time choosing between these rebels and the army, uh, the, the poorly paid army that's coming back. And so this is, a, this is something that, you know, the international community has invested billions of dollars in over the years, both through bilateral aid and through the United Nations peacekeepers that are here. It clearly has not been enough, and the strategy needs to change. Thank you very much for talking to us. Correspondent Michael Kavanaugh, who is now in the rebel-held city of Goma in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Thank you again. Thanks, Lisa. Today in Qatar, a poet was sentenced to life in prison, his crime inciting the overthrow of the ruling regime. What he actually did was to write a poem that praised the Tunisian Revolution. That's the one that sparked the Arab Spring. Officials called the poem an insult to Qatar's ruling emir. In the poem, Mohammed Ibdin al-Dib al-Jami wrote, We are all Tunisia in the face of the repressive elite. Al-Jami described Arab governments as indiscriminate thieves. His poem got wide distribution in the Arab world, including in an online video of Ajami reciting the poem. Ajami was arrested last November. He's been in prison since then, most of the time in solitary confinement, and he hasn't been allowed to see his family. Qatar isn't the only Gulf state cracking down on dissent, real or perceived, says Sanjeev Berry. He's the Middle East and North Africa advocacy director for Amnesty International. Across the Gulf monarchies, there's an increasing level of repression. Kuwait and Bahrain have put, both put bans on protests, and Saudi Arabia continues to imprison and detain those who are peaceful human rights critics of the government. Now on top of that, we have a poet in Qatar who's been given a life sentence simply for writing a poem that is critical of the governments in the region. All of this has to stop, and Western governments need to start holding their allies in the Middle East accountable for these sorts of actions. And as for the jail poet Ajami, his lawyer called today's life sentence a tremendous miscarriage of justice. He plans to appeal. Much more news and our global hits still to come. This is PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on the world, Spain's radical right struggles for a foothold. And later, a Mexican artist makes a point by using gunshots and sirens in his music. You're dancing to all these uh, very violent rhythms. In a way, you could say that in itself is uh, dance floor politics. That and more coming up on the world. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, supporting patient-serving groups such as the International Diabetes Federation, who help empower individuals with diabetes to live life to the fullest. Learn more about the International Diabetes Federation and others who are taking on this disease at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. 2012 is on target to be one of the 10 warmest years on record. That's the word from the UN's World Meteorological Organization. That estimate comes as we close out a year now that saw record heat waves across the U.S. and Europe and record ice melt in the Arctic. It continues a trend of unusually hot years going back more than a decade, and it's led the organization's chief to declare that climate change is taking place before our eyes. The report comes just as the latest annual Global Climate Summit gets underway in Doha, Qatar. The world's environment editor, Peter Thompson, joins us now. And I know that you want to talk about this meeting in Doha, but there are other issues in the news, some of them fairly troubling, I should say. Uh, Please bring us up to date. Yeah, let's see. Where to begin on on climate-related news? Um, One new report this week telling us that global carbon dioxide emissions hit another new record last year. CO2, of course, is the most important greenhouse gas. Overall emissions are rising about 3% a year these days, and that's about three times as fast as they were growing in the 1990s. Then there's sea levels. Another new report has just found that on average, sea levels are rising about 60% faster than the UN predicted just five years ago. Back on temperatures for a minute, that report from the World Meteorological Organization shows that global average temperatures over the last decade or so are up nearly half a degree Celsius over the benchmark that scientists use, which is the average of the 30 years between 1961 and 1990. You might remember that the world's governments agreed a few years ago to cap global warming at two degrees Celsius. That's about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit in order to avoid really calamitous warming. Well, as we reported here on The World last week, a new World Bank report projects that without really big changes, we're headed for a rise of at least four degrees Celsius. That's more than seven degrees Fahrenheit by 2100. Finally, there was a loud warning this week from a number of fronts on the growing threat of methane seeping out from the permafrost and under the seabeds of the Arctic and the subarctic as that region warms up very quickly. Methane is an extremely powerful greenhouse gas, and we're actually going to hear more about that on the program tomorrow. Um, Anyway, so overall, things in the climate front are not looking good. Which means negotiators in Doha, Qatar for the World Climate Summit this year have their hands full. What are they going to do? Well, uh, hopefully they will do a little bit more than tread water, which is what many people say they have been doing the last few years. Um, The whole UN climate process has been pretty much on life support since that big meeting in Copenhagen three years ago. You probably remember that there were huge expectations for a strong new global agreement on capping emissions back then. Instead, the summit managed just a last-minute sort of face-saving agreement of basic principles. Then last year in Durban, South Africa, countries at least committed to draw up a new treaty, which would go into effect by 2020. Some saw that as showing sort of a new resolve. Others say it was just continuing to kick the can down the road. But in any case, this year's conference is focused mostly on starting to put some flesh on the bones of those skeletal agreements from the last few years. So we might end up with some progress on, for instance, how to pay for a fund to help the poorest countries deal with climate change, perhaps on how all countries can reliably monitor and report their carbon emissions so everybody can know reliably what everybody else is doing. But generally, it's probably going to be really incremental stuff. Peter, I know that one of the uh, big stumbling blocks has been the schism between developed countries and developing countries over who should do how much to cut greenhouse pollution. Is that still the case? Uh, Yeah, pretty much just as much as ever. Um, Of course, the two biggest players are the U.S. and China. The U.S. is the biggest historical polluter. China is the biggest current polluter. 
They've been inching ever so slowly closer over the last few years, but nothing close to what would bring about a breakthrough and certainly nothing close to what scientists are telling us we have to do to tackle this quickly escalating crisis. Okay. Thanks very much, the world's environment editor, Peter Thompson. Thanks, Lisa. Earlier this week, we reported on the rise of neo-Nazism in Germany. The radical right has made gains in other places, too, especially in Greece, where the Golden Dawn Party now has members in parliament. But in Spain, the far right is faring less well. Extremists there have failed to capitalize on the economic crisis and joblessness to gain followers. The world's Jerry Haddon explores why. He begins in a small Mediterranean village called Sia. Silla is really traditional. Flower shops advertise free home delivery on Catholic saints' days. On a recent morning, a small car circulates, announcing the death of a neighbor and the date and time of the funeral. And outside the mayor's office, a man wearing a sandwich board sells daily lottery tickets. Lottery vendors are great people to talk to. They tend to know everyone, all the gossip. Jose Antonio Gutierrez tells me a lot of people here are out of work and that folks are increasingly blaming foreigners. If there's no work, we shouldn't let outsiders in, he says. My mother worked for years in France, and when her contract was up, she got a kick in the pants and a one-way ticket home, period. There's no other way. What little work there is these days, he says, should go to Spaniards. Only about 13% of CIA is immigrants, about the national average. But sentiment is strong against them, in part because of something very untraditional that happened in town last spring. A radical, far-right political party called Spain 2000 won two seats on the town council. Spain 2000's main slogan is, Spaniards first. Spain 2000's fundamental principle is to give priority to Spaniards, says party president José Luis Roberto. We're sitting at party headquarters about 20 minutes up the coast from Silla in Valencia. If you live in an apartment building and there's a crisis and you don't have enough for all the neighbors, you feed your own family first, Roberto says. Every country in the world follows the same logic. I imagine it's the same in America. It's common sense. Spain 2000 has a privately funded nonprofit here that runs a homeless shelter and a cafeteria. Roberto says they offer no aid to foreigners as long as Spaniards are waiting in line. That's earned the party a lot of monikers, racist, xenophobic, fascist. Roberto says Spain 2000 is simply, quote, preferentialist. Whatever the case, Spain 2000 and other far-right Spanish groups are using a formula that's brought extremists in other European countries some power, especially during this crisis, providing social services along with a patriotic message. But while Spanish groups have adopted the method, they haven't found the same success as, say, Greece's Golden Dawn or France's National Front. In fact, no Spanish extreme-right politician has risen higher than town council, and even those seats you can count on your fingers. One reason José Luis Roberto admits is infighting. He says while his party has a lot in common with other Spanish groups, such as a rejection of Islam and free market capitalism, other issues keep them divided. We have tried to build links to other parties, he says, but the problem is that politics is for idiots. A while back, we joined a party called the Spanish Alternative, but they have a distinctly Catholic approach, so they backed out. There's also the problem of who joins these groups. Roberto himself has been dogged by controversy for years. He's been accused in an attempted bombing and of various hate crimes. The charges have always been thrown out. Another member of Spain 2000 is still under indictment, resulting from a sting operation against neo-Nazis. 
One activist in Valencia who didn't want his name used out of fear of retaliation says this proves Spanish ultra-right parties have at least indirect links to violent groups, even if they deny it. He says in recent years, several small explosive devices have been set off in the Valencia area. The targets, people or institutions on the left. But, he says, it's the same across Europe. The extreme right will never admit any support or sympathy for fascists and neo-Nazis, especially not in Spain. With our fascist past, it would be politically counterproductive to openly support neo-Nazis. Spain was ruled by the fascist general Francisco Franco for four decades until his death and the transition to democracy in the 1970s. Even the suggestion that today's far right is an offshoot of Franco-style fascism turns many Spaniards away. For other supporters of far-right ideology, though, reaching all the way back to Franco isn't necessary. They can turn to the party currently in power in Spain, the center-right Popular Party, or PP. The PP is huge, sort of an umbrella group for conservatives, and it has its extremist wing. This is Xavier Garcia Albiol, Popular Party mayor of the Spanish town of Badalona, essentially stealing Spain 2000's thunder this summer. He told reporters that because of the crisis, he would no longer be offering social services to newly arrived immigrants. But analysts say you can't write off Spain's far right just because the movement is divided and sluggish today. Before this economic crisis, no one imagined Greece's far-right golden dawn would ever amount to much. Today, it has 18 seats in Parliament. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Valencia, Spain. Moving to the eastern side of Europe now, we've got the latest hockey score from Yaroslavl, Russia. The home team, Lokomotiv, lost 3-2 to the Kazan Akbars. What? You don't follow Russian hockey? We'll just follow along for the next four minutes or so because the team from Yaroslavl is definitely one to watch. Now, you might remember that it was last year the entire locomotive hockey team died in a plane crash just as it was taking off for a game. This season, the team is rebuilding and getting back on its skates. The locomotive squad is coached this season by Tom Rowe. He's a former NHL player and coach. And Tom, I guess I should first say sorry about last night. Well, <laughs> we, we've been on a pretty good roll. We had one... Uh... You know, nine in a row, we, we've hit a little skid now, but good adversity, and we'll see how we handle it. How has the season been for you so far? Actually, it's been very good. We're uh, 22 and 8 up until this point. Wow. Uh, what's been great is we, we've got a lot of young kids on the team, and we've been able to fit them into the lineup with you know some experienced players. So chemistry-wise and, and teamwork, it, it's all come together fairly quickly. Now, we spoke to you earlier this summer. You were still here in the States. It was when you had just accepted this coaching assignment in Yaroslavl. What did you do to contribute to the successes so far? And correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, but do you have any current players who were part of the previous team? No. I mean, we, we have players that have played here before, but they weren't here the last couple of years. And they've come back specifically to help rebuild the program. But, you know, what we've done specifically is really, you know, talk an awful lot about team building. And, and when we hit tough stretches, make sure we're supporting each other and not pointing fingers when you go through some tough times, which happens a lot in pro sports. So, so we've tried to keep it very positive and very upbeat. I think everybody is mourned in their own individual way or, or they've dealt with it. Because you got to remember, a lot of the players here came here because they had friends that were on that plane or they had played against them and knew the players. So there's a connection pretty much through a lot of the guys that are here currently. Can I just ask you kind of managerially, because you were a coach of the Carolina Hurricanes, from kind of a management perspective for you now, 
how you are leading the team to get beyond the tragedy? The, the biggest thing is just, you know, be patient. You know, when you have games where maybe things aren't going well for a particular player, you, you got to think possibly that, you know, it could be that he's affected by losing a friend. So, and I've had a couple conversations with a couple of players that weren't playing particularly well, or I, I had to scratch him from the lineup on a particular game. And, you know, I, and when I do that, I always have a meeting with the player that day and to get their input. And a couple of players have brought it up and said it's been tough because my friend was on that plane. So as a coaching staff, we need to be sensitive to that. So yeah, we, we, we've had some moments. What we've done, especially in the beginning of the year, we had a service at the church here in Yaroslavl, and then we visited the cemetery. And, and that was tough, and that was very emotional. And then um, every city we go to where there was a player from, then we go to play some of these teams in our league. If the player lived in that particular city, we go and make a visit to the cemeteries. That's a lovely ritual. Yeah, I, it, it's been terrific. I mean, it's uh, something new for myself and the other North American players that we have here, but it's in the Russian culture that that's how they mourn. I mean, they, they do spend some time at the cemetery, and, you know, we usually go and just stand there in quiet for 20 to 30 minutes, and um, everybody places a flower at the tombstone, and, and they just kind of think quietly by themselves and think of the good times. And I think that's really brought our team together and given everybody chances to to mourn and, and give thought and, you know, just think of the real reason why we're all here. So who are you going to play next, uh, the locomotive team? Uh, we play a team by the name of Ufa tomorrow night, uh, which is a big game, very skilled team. And, uh, you know, big game, obviously, for us because we're on a three-game losing streak. So we, we, need to, we need to get back on the winning track. Good. Tom Rowe, really nice to speak to you. Tom Rowe, coach of the newly rebuilt Yaroslavl Locomotive Pro Hockey Team in Yaroslavl, Russia. Thanks very much, and good luck for the rest of the season. Nice talking with you. Have a good day. We're going to move now to a different sport for our GeoQuiz. We're talking soccer, specifically soccer south of the border. Mexico's two top professional soccer teams are ready for their showdown. They meet up tonight and again on Sunday evening in a two-game series to decide which team will be the national champion. And one of the teams is from Toluca in central Mexico. The other? It's from the border city we want you to name today. This is Mexico's westernmost city. It was once known to Americans mostly as a place to party and drink up. That was before drug trafficking and a soaring crime rate took their toll, scaring the tourists away. Recently, though, things have improved. Crime is down, bars and restaurants are busy again, and people are excited about their local team. Can you name this city home of the Cholos of Mexican soccer? We'll be back with the answer in just a bit. Next week, PRI's The World examines the human cost of cancer in the developing world. Cancer kills more people there than AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria combined. Learn what's being done to save lives. Our series starts Monday on The World.
This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The next soccer champs in Mexico could be a bunch of hairless dogs. So says our resident soccer expert, William Troop. Explain that one, William. Well, there are two teams uh, battling to become the champions of uh, the first uh, top division of Mexican soccer. One is Toluca, and they're nicknamed the Red Devils. The other one is from Tijuana, and their nickname is the Cholos. And that is a reference to the Cholitzquintle, which is what we would know here in the U.S. as the Mexican hairless dog. And that's what they're known as, the Cholos. Mexican hairless dog, meaning like kind of like a chihuahua? but Well, some Cholos look like chihuahuas, but they're a different breed. And they also can be small dogs, toy dogs, or they can be big dogs. Just the right size, anyway, to fit as the insignia on the team's uniform. That's right. That's exactly what it is. Uh, it's a round insignia that says Club Tijuana Xolid Squintles de Caliente, where in the middle they have a picture of a Mexican hairless dog. Xolid Squintles. Uh-huh. Quadruple word score for that one. Um, <laughs> so how big a deal is this for Tijuana? It, it's a big deal. Uh, for one thing, the team didn't exist until just a few years ago, so... Uh, they started in 2007 from the minor leagues, and now they're uh, battling to become champions of Mexican soccer. That's a big deal in itself. But the fact that they're based in Tijuana is is pretty exciting. Uh, the city for so long had a shadow cast on it by drug trafficking and violence. The murder rate was sky high for many years. Recently, though, uh, the violence has gone down, and uh, entertainment in the city has uh, started happening again, bars, restaurants. And The fact that now people are excited about a soccer team speaks volumes for how far the city has come. So the rebirth of Tijuana is in part, I guess, led by or led to the birth of this team. They kind of go hand in hand, absolutely. Um, Incidentally, uh, the fact that this team is is so hot right now and it's so close to the U.S. border also attracts American fans who come down from San Diego to see Sholo games. But San Diego has its own soccer team. They do. And yet, you know, uh, some some fans at least find what's happening in Tijuana soccer-wise more exciting. Because the people of Tijuana are absolutely passionate behind this team. Okay, so the Tijuana team, what's the name of it again? (laughs) They're called the Cholos. The Uh, Cholos, thank goodness, is the short one. Uh, They're going to be playing twice in the next uh, couple days. Yeah, they play tonight, so that's uh, round one of the final, and then they play in Toluca on Sunday. And after that, we'll know who the champions are. Okay. As a news guy, this is this is your part of the world that you yourself are passionate about. Uh, You're going to be watching for what? I always like to root for an underdog, no pun intended. And uh, I think I'm, <laughs> a hairless underdog. I would really like uh, the Sholos to win this one. All right. And Tijuana is the answer to our geo-quiz today, home of the Sholos. Thank you, the world's William Troop. You're welcome. And we stay in Tijuana for today's global hit. As we just heard, the level of violence in the border city has diminished in recent years. And that has led to a sort of cultural awakening there. Reporter Valerie Hamilton tells us about a Tijuana band whose members are speaking out about violence, corruption, and politics in Mexico. Sangre Bandera Cruz, the new track from Tijuana Electronica outfit Los Macuanos, makes a political point with an unusual sample. It's Mexico's outgoing president, Felipe Calderón. The translation is, in spite of it all, Mexico is still standing. Ruben Torres produced the song with the Calderon clip. He describes it as a political cartoon with a beat. And then he's about to say something else. Mexico is still standing because blah, 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 blah. But we cut it just before he says the because, and now it just says, Mexico is still standing? Like, 
Sounds unsure about it, like he wants to say it, but you have all these dead people here. Desde Tijuana, Baja California. Los Macuanos. Torres founded Los Macuanos in 2009 with his cousin Moises López and their friend Moises Horta when they were in their early 20s and Tijuana was under siege. Here's Moises López. It was a very strange situation. I mean, you would hear about violence, you would see it on the television, you would see it on the newspaper, but you wouldn't, um, like, really see it. Like, I personally never, never saw it, but I would hear, like, uh, my neighbor just got, just got hung from, like, a light post, like, one block away. It was even scarier because you, you couldn't see it. I mean, it's kind of like this ghostly figure that was, like, always present and always, like, uh, a menace. The music Los Macuanos makes is known as Ruido Son, which roughly translates as noise folk, electronic music that mixes dance beats with sounds evoking Mexican culture. In Tijuana in 2009, that culture was pretty dark. At the time, I didn't think like to make uh, political music or to make like uh, socially relevant music. I mean, I was just like translating my experience to music and. It turned out it sounded like Mexico, it sounded like Tijuana, uh, but with these stark undertones. Electronica may not be the first thing that comes to mind when you think of political music, but Tijuana's youth culture revolves around clubs where dance music fuels a late-night party scene. That was almost a drug war casualty, too. At the height of the crisis in 2008 and 2009, just going out at night was an act of defiance. Now that the violence has faded in Tijuana, Moises Horta says, the dance floors are packed again. It's political in the sense that you're dancing to the, all these, uh, I don't know, like political samples and like very violent rhythms. And you're like partying, but and in the back of your mind, you're kind of getting tripped out about the whole situation. If like, if like you're partying in, in the apocalypse, something like that. So in a way, you could say that in itself is uh, dance floor politics. Dance floor politics aren't new in Mexico. Los Macuanos and other young musicians were raised on politically tinged music in the era of the PRI, or PRI, the party that ruled uninterrupted for 71 years up until 2000. La policía te está extorsionando, pero ellos viven de lo que tú estás... Yeah, there's a lot of bands that used to be very political back when uh, the PRI was still in power. With the election of incoming president Enrique Peña Nieto, the PRI is back. And that's fueled an uptick in political action among Mexican youth and political music. Ruben Torres says Los Macuanos are musicians, not activists. But they're speaking up, and they hope Mexico is listening. It's just music. It's just pop music. You know, like, I don't think that we're that much of a threat to the status quo or anything like that, but I just think that... Maybe, I don't know, there's some part of you that says, that, well, maybe somebody's going to change something about the way they think. For The World, I'm Valerie Hamilton, Tijuana. You can take pictures of Los Macuanos performing live at a recent festival. Take a look at a slideshow at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins, and we're back tomorrow.
World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI Public Radio International.